0: Would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be gathered here tonight. Um, On this Monday evening, we come together as your people, called by your Holy Spirit to this fellowship, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would open up this book of Revelation for us, um, help us to hear your word, help us to uh, get past a lot of the misunderstandings and and sometimes even fright that's associated with this book, because uh, we do want to heed Jesus' word that, that about um, hearing the word and, and, and living them. All this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, so here we go. So this is, I don't know, must be like the third week or something, right, of Revelation. And in the first two weeks, we went through chapter 1, and chapter 1 consists of a prologue. Uh, a brief introductory piece. And then you get the first vision. Remember that first vision was this vision of Jesus. And we sort of walked through that and we saw that it was really a little straightforward. I mean, Jesus is depicted as wise because he has white hair and he's depicted as having a very powerful penetrating word because there's a sword coming out of his mouth. And there are just other things that, that aren't that difficult to grasp and the ones that we might wonder about which were the seven stars and the seven lampstands are even explained to us at the end of the first chapter that we find out that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches to whom the letter is among whom the letters to be circulated this piece of writing and the seven lampstands are the churches themselves. So I will just jump the gun a little bit and help Let's just remember that that what is the function of a lampstand? To light things up, right? And and you remember the sermon on the mount? Jesus said we are that his followers were to be the light of the world. So those are a couple ideas to hold together when we come to these seven churches. Because when chapter two opens, we're going to go through each of these letters to this, to these seven churches started with ephesus and moving on from there so a couple of things about the letters they're not really in the form of greco-roman letters so we could better think of them as messages and these messages are the word of god each message really begins in sort of the greek formulation of it something like thus saith the lord right and so then it's laid out very um, carefully and they all not all because a couple of the one of the churches Jesus has not much good to say about and a couple of them he has nothing bad to say about but there are words of commendation and then words of instruction or maybe a call to repentance and then a word of encouragement and a word of promise about what awaits those who persevere and Are victorious so in that way each letter is a bit is is a little bit similar and the first of them is the letter to Ephesus so what I want to do to get started is I I do hope that your Bible has maps in the back and so why don't you look to to a map that is probably says something like Paul's missionary journeys okay and in it you'll find a map of Asia Minor Okay? And if you find that map of Asia Minor, it's modern-day Turkey, then if you look on the western coast of modern-day Turkey, you will find the city of Ephesus, almost smack dab in the middle of the western coast of Turkey. Now, how many many of you have been to Ephesus? Right? Because if you travel that part of the world... Um, a lot of the cruise ships and stuff have stopped at Ephesus. Now lately it's been a little bit more problematic because of troubles in Turkey, but it's a very popular spot because it has really what are some of the best ruins, if you want to think about it that way, in the ancient world. And Ephesus, when this book of Revelation was written, was a city of maybe 250,000 people. It's a big place, it's an important place. It's one of the most important cities um, in the empire. If you've been there, you know that it's not on the water today. The water is, the Mediterranean's like, seven miles away. But in Jesus' day, in the first century AD, it was a port city and the Mediterranean came all the way up to, up to Ephesus. In fact, if you go to Ephesus and you look in the right place, you can see this vast, vast, just flat field. Well, that's where the water was, and it's now receded, and, and so forth. But it, it's a big city, had a Jewish population in it. Um, Paul spent maybe three years there. There's a huge amphitheater there. It seats 25,000 people. And uh, when you go to Ephesus, you have the opportunity uh, to sit um, in, in, in this amphitheater. In the old days, when you went to Ephesus, you also had an opportunity to sit on the toilets. <laughs> Some of you may remember that. They're kind of out there and you would have a chance to sit on them and s- see, learn how the water would flow underneath them to wash everything away. So, you know, it was a pretty big, colorful place. That, um, They've done a lot of excavating of nice homes in Ephesus, which are on the hillsides, right? Because the rich people live on the hillsides or the hilltops. The poor people have to live down where it smells really bad and the, and the land is low. So um, it is certainly of the seven churches that are going to get these messages, Ephesus is the most significant um, of them. And if you look at your map that you have open, you'll probably see that, are, that Ephesus Smyrna, Laodicea, Philadelphia, Thyatira, Sardis, Pergamum. They're all there. They're all grouped and really like a little circle almost. If it were a postal delivery, you could, you could visit all seven places in a, in a circular sort of route with never feeling like you were going too far out of your way. So, <clears throat> this letter of Revelation begins in earnest with the letters to those seven churches. And I think that's kind of encouraging because it, um, how can I put this, it takes a while for the book of Revelation to get really weird. So you have a chance to. I mean, I'm serious. So you get a chance to kind of warm up some and stuff before you really start hitting the 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 visions and the symbols and the imagery that makes people's eyes get get really big. These letters, all seven, you could do a sermon series very easily um, off of each, working out of each one of the seven letters. In fact, you'd probably be two series because each letter has. Um, uh, a couple of things at least in it that a preacher would want to talk about in, in a sermon. So, any questions or thoughts about Ephesus, your map, anything like that I can help with? I like to use the maps because they help us ground all of this in reality, right? It just, it's, this, this is a letter written to real people in Asia Minor who are facing persecution and need to be encouraged and and strengthened and comforted in that. And that's what this letter is really about. So let's look at the first one. That begins in Revelation chapter 2 verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write. Now that's how the NIV does it, but it it really is has kind of the force of to the angel of the church in Ephesus thus saith the Lord. Right? This is God's word brought down directly, these are the words of Jesus, if you have a red-letter Bible, which I don't really recommend, but they're kind of hard to avoid, why wouldn't I recommend a red-letter Bible? What could be the problem with that? The problem with the red-letter Bible is this. It makes you think that what Jesus says is vastly more important than what Jesus does. If you had a red letter and a red action Bible, then I could buy into that. But, but I think for a lot of people, they grow up hearing Jesus' words and, and it's easy for them to ignore what He does. And often what He does is where the real message and announcement of the Kingdom is happening in what He does. Because when He does, when He makes a blind man see or a, um, a crippled man walk, Those are much more than just acts of compassion. They are enactments of the kingdom of God, which he is announcing. And because in the kingdom of God, there are no blind. In the kingdom of God, there are no lame. And so all of his actions are invested with deep meaning. When he forgives sins, right? That's invested with deep meaning. And so that's my deal about red-letter Bibles. But I would point out that I'm reading from one here. (laughs) So So the words are in red. So, thus saith the Lord. Now here's the message for Ephesus, okay? These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. So the seven stars, we know from just a paragraph before nearly, are the angels of the seven churches and the lampstands are the churches themselves. What's different is, in chapter 1, in the initial vision of Jesus, he is standing among the lampstands. What does this say about Jesus? What's he doing? He's walking among the lampstands. He is active and, 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 and busy and walking among these, these churches. He's not static. There's, there's, there's dynamism here. Right. He walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, Jesus says. Now that word should not be thought to mean just like he has in mind particular things that you're doing. What he has in mind is your way of life. Your manner of living. I know what the shape of your life is. I know the choices that you are making in your life every day. I know your deeds. Some of your translations may have, I know your works. Um, I know your deeds. I know your works. I, I, I know the kind of life you are leading, he says to the Ephesians. I know your hard work. People in this day and age did work really hard. I mean, I mean I've, I've worked at a desk most of my life. Sure, it came with stress from time to time, but it isn't exactly hard labor, okay? In the ancient world, people worked really hard. They worked seven days a week, not, not five or six. They worked seven days a week, um, un- unless you were Jewish. And they lived on really subsistence diets. They, they didn't have the calories that you and I, interesting, now we try to avoid them. And this is a world in which life was a battle for calories. So, so they do work hard, Jesus says. I know your hard work and your perseverance. That's a word that will be repeat, repeated in the letters. The Christian life is so much about just plain perseverance. Our lives are filled with ups and downs and troubles and this and that and choices. A lot of it is just waking up in the morning putting one foot in front of the other striving to walk in God's way failing sometimes getting up the next morning striving to do it again persevering not giving up you hit an obstacle you hit well I'm getting old now so you hit an illness or you the doctor tells you something that you don't like or whatever and rather than get you know turning make it turn up you would turn away from God you persevere and you march on the next day, and the next day, and the next day. Perseverance. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. Then he says to them, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. I don't know. Do I tolerate wicked people? I don't, I don't, I don't view myself as knowing that many wicked people, honestly. <laughs> Um, But we would always have to guard against (coughs) tolerating wickedness, tolerating injustice, tolerating oppression, tolerating all the bad things, large and small, that people want to do to one another. Um, We aren't called to tolerate that. We're, we're called to, to attack those problems. And here he commenced the Ephesians, I know you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. Now for a long time in my life before I started really trying to apply myself to, to this in any sort of way, I just thought like there were like 12 apostles. The 12 disciples became the 12 apostles. But apostle is just a word that means somebody who is sent forth. And so there were more than the twelve. There were others who were called apostles. One of the most interesting you will meet at the... No, you won't because this is Monday night. My Tuesday class (laughs) will meet this this person at the very end of Romans when Paul commends to them a woman named Junia, who he says is prominent among the apostles which should be taken to say that Juni is someone he sees as an apostle. These are people who would go around proclaiming Christ, to proclaiming the good news. And here's the thing to ask yourself, do you think that here, I mean we're only what, 50 years, 60 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, do you think all of those people who might go around to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ get it right? No. You can bet they don't. Um, in the book of Acts, we meet Priscilla and her husband, um, Aquila, and they have met one of these, he's, I don't think he's called an apostle, but this, this um, evangelist person. And when they meet him, they, they come to understand that he doesn't really understand the baptism in Jesus. He understands the baptism that John did out at the Jordan River, but he doesn't really understand the difference between the baptism that John does in the Jordan River and the baptism in Christ. And so they take him aside, um, and Priscilla straightens him out and, and teaches him that. And he's not a bad guy, but he is. Um, well, he was wrong. But do you think that there were possibly people who were a little bit what would I call them, hucksters going around, you know, talking about Jesus in this time? But probably were. I guess we have them now. We have them now. Throwing themselves on the, you know, the kindness and charity of these Christian communities and so forth. Um, in the late first century, the same time as this, there's a piece of writing we have called the Didache. And it's like an instruction manual for Christians. And one thing it says is about this testing of apostles. That if they come for a night, feed them and put them up. Maybe a second night. But if they want to stay to a third night, they're false people and you need to get them out of town. So, you know, I take all that to mean that, yeah, 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 this this was a problem. And so the Ephesians are commended by Christ for not tolerating wickedness, especially in the forms of false teaching. Um, one of the things you find, I don't know why I'm looking at, that got loud, um, at the board, but if you look at the, as, as you go through the timeline of the New Testament writings, so the first are paul's some of Paul's letters beginning in maybe fifty a d and then you get Mark's Gospel in the mid sixties and and you go on through the later Luke Matthew or probably in the mid early eighties and you, when you get to close to the end of the first century, you get writings like um like like Revelation here or like the Gospel of John. And you find in the later writings a growing concern with false teaching. Which makes all sense all kind of sense to me. That as the church is beginning to get established, the church is uh, the Christian community is having to get more and more serious about what that what that proclamation is and really more more focused on some sort of community-to-community orthodoxy or whatever you might want to think about it. Now this is what the gospel of of Christ really is. And so you just see in these later writings more concerned about false teachers. And here here it's false apostles. That you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered. There's that word again right? It has to be a favorite word of Paul. That man persevered through a lot. In 2 Corinthians 11, he lists all the stuff that he has had to persevere through. It's estimated he walked 10,000 miles in skinny little sandals, you know, not the kind of New Balance things I have on here tonight, in skinny little sandals over the mountains of of Asia Minor and, and so forth. So yeah, he knows about persevering. And, and um, so here, Jesus commends them for persevering. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. For my name is, is, is in their world, it's a way of talking about Christ. It could just as easily be translated for me. So for Jesus' name, to do something in Jesus' name, to do something... Um, Uh, For Jesus' name is doing it for Jesus. It's just, uh, uh, I'd I'd call it an an expression, really. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Because when you grow weary, see, that's when it's hard to persevere. So they have pressed on. They have kept on. Right? So, thoughts, questions about this, because that's a little section of you know positive and good things Jesus has to say to them cuz the tone's going to change just a bit here how many people is he writing
1: to how
0: many people is he writing to so how many christians were there at this time not many probably the most widely cited historian and sociologist um Uh, that I've seen in recent years is a guy named Rodney Stark and he went through a study of you know looking at other people's work and he estimated that at this time there probably aren't more than seven or eight thousand Christians in the whole of the Roman Empire which seems like Given to what I would kind of imagine when I was growing up in the church, how many there were, I imagined a whole bunch more. But then I started running into people who, like Richard Hayes at at Duke, who is one of the leading Paul scholars in the world. He said, you know, you read the letter to Corinth. First Corinthians, big letter, long letter. How many Christians were there in Corinth? 125? Meeting in four or five house churches? Just not many. Not many. And, um, but they are enduring persecution, enduring, it doesn't have to be, and this letter is written to Christians, it doesn't have to be that they're all being pulled, you know, facing execution or something, but they could be shunned, they could be denied work, um, refused admission to, if you're a carpenter, the Carpenters' Union, the Carpenters' Guild, something like that, because the Christians would have nothing to do with all the pagan gods and goddesses and denied even their existence. And the, as I've talked about on my Sunday class, the pagan gods and goddesses are woven into the f- every bit of the fabric of everyday life in the Greco-Roman world. Weddings, jobs, par- everything involves the pagan gods and goddesses. So here come the Christians along saying, well, you know, we those aren't even real dude and 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 getting getting persecuted for it there's no empire where empire-wide persecution by the Roman emperor for almost 250 years after Jesus but they've already run into big trouble under in the reign of Nero in the 60s which is a generation before this and now in Asia Minor they're running into it again so Thoughts or questions or anything? Yeah. Did the uh, treatment of the Christians by the Romans, did that parallel the same treatment to the Jews? It's a good question, Larry. So Larry's question is, see, I'm going to actually repeat the question for the podcast. This is amazing. Mark it down. Okay, so Larry's question to me is, did the Christians... And the treatment they got from the um, Romans parallel the Jews because the Jews obviously denied the existence of all these pagan gods and goddesses. The answer is no. The Romans had a long experience with the Jews. The Jews were accorded special privileges that they had just gotten over time. Why did they get special privileges? Why didn't they have to pay the Caesar tax in the first century? Because the Romans just wanted the peace kept. And the Jews had demonstrated their willingness to rebel, that the Great Maccabean Revolt was an illustration, right? And and they had demonstrated in Judea and Jerusalem that they were hmm, how could I put this? That 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 they they were ready to fight. And so the Romans just said, Okay, but the Christians were not accorded that. Because even though the Christians sprung out of the Jewish tree, they weren't seen as Jews. Even Jewish Christians, well, Jewish Christians probably were, but the Christians weren't seen as part of the Jewish movement, even though they worshipped this Jewish Messiah, Jesus, because the Christians lived among everybody else. They, lived, they, could, they would be your neighbor, right? Not the Jews. The Jews lived together themselves, and, and typically in these cities there would be Jewish quarters. Right Where the Jews tended to live, and so, but the Christians, they didn't move, they didn't move into special parts of town. They just lived among everybody else, and um, like, well, like we do now, right? So no, they didn't get those same privileges. Yes.: Do you think part of it might have been because Christians were viewed as betrayers? I mean, where didn't they used to worship all the gods? until they converted to Christianity. Well, so I'm being asked whether it had to do with the Christians having left the pagan gods and goddesses like, like if like you had abandoned that religion or something. I would not say it's like that because this idea of like a re- the worship of the pagan gods, gods and goddesses wasn't a religion like we have Judaism, Christianity or Islam. It is simply life every part of life. There's no separation, you know, church and state, sacred, secular, none of that language we used to talk about religion and society uh, was the case. The the, the top dog, the, the top dog, the priest of all priests of the Roman Empire was whom? Caesar. 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 He was the Pontifex Maximus. So it's just all woven together and it's a big family thing. So I, I, I think it really much of it boils down to their just disdain of the gods. Okay. But anyway. Okay, anything else? Let's see what is more said about the church in Ephesus. Verse 4. Jesus, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. That's a great, that's a great sentence, isn't it? You have forsaken the love you you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. And if you don't repent, I will come to you. And this is present tense. I will come to you. So he's not talking about Jesus coming back someday. I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Like you have lost your first love you've fallen so far repent or how could you possibly be the light to the world that's what I get out of it it's a lampstand Lampstands provide light well how can you be light if you have lost your first love now if you read commentaries on this there's a few different opinions about what this refer to something it refers to the love of you know the true gospel or something um, if I were preaching it, that's not how i preach it. I, I think it speaks more to our tendency to get enthusiastic about something, you know. I'm all into Jesus, baby. And then over time, what happens? It all just becomes a little bit ordinary and expected. And, you know, okay, I don't really need to get up this Sunday. and And some of that, right? That passion and enthusiasm just kind of fades away. It's like there are people who are who love being in love and they're willing to chase one relationship after another for that initial period, right? When they think, ah, I'm head over heels now and birds are chirping and violins are playing and then when they perceive that they're losing the birds and the violins, they find somebody else. So, at least for me, that's how this letter speaks to me is to stay passionate. If, if, if Jesus just becomes another fixture in your life and you've lost, you've lost the love you had at first, where are you really? Look, look what he says in verse 5. Repent and do the things you did at first. I, I do not, understandably, I don't do marriage counseling. Okay? Okay? Um, But I have a lot of experience. (laughs) Good and good and ill. Okay, it's all good with Patty. When I say ill, the ill part refers to my pre-Patty life. Okay, just so we're clear, right there? Yes. Okay. (laughs) Right? Okay. So um, I had a person I care about very much come to me once and said, "Well, I'm leaving." my wife today, because I, 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 I just don't love her. And you know what? I've decided I never did. Which was all a joke, okay? Um, especially the, ne- the never did part. And so <sighs> we told him, nope, nope, here's what you need to do. You need to go back and do the things that you would do if you felt the way you want to feel. And that's the path back to the feelings and he and his wife have been happily married ever since because he went back and he started doing the things that he would do if he felt the way he wanted to feel and i hear even in this consider how far you have fallen jesus says repent and do the things you did at first because you can't always control how you feel but you can control what you do Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you do have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I, Jesus, also hate. And every person in this room wants to know who the Nicolaitans are. (laughs) And I'm going to tell you, there's a whole lot of guesses about that. Okay, the church tradition is that these were followers of one of the um, first deacons in the church in Acts six, Nicola or Nicholas, um, who goes to Antioch and begins to to put together a community that lives a different sort of life. And some people, like my the NIV Study Bible here, does this. It links this to the Jezebel we're going to run into, and, and you know, I, I just don't know that we know enough to really do that. I, I think this is better, up really, for me, under, remi- it's a reminder to me that I'm sitting here two thou- almost 2,000 years after the writing of this letter, and I shouldn't really think that every reference in the letter is going to make sense to me, that some pieces of it we're going to have to do guesswork on. And it doesn't really matter who the Nicolaitans are. It's simply um, uh, an expression probably of Jesus commending them because in their desire to stay to the true gospel that they have avoided practices um, uh, that... That they should. Uh, some people speculate that it is things like eating food sacrificed to idols or sexual immorality because those are specifically um, sort of forbidden in the Acts 15 letter, but it, it doesn't matter. It's just that these, these places are contending with folks um, and they've had to make choices. And in this case, with regard to the Nicolaitans, the Ephesians Christians have made a good choice. You hate? Yes. Well, uh, <clears throat> what I focus in on this because I have no idea who these people are either uh, is the idea it says which I also hate, which I think is interesting because <clears throat> you'll hear this nowadays where where people will talk about that that that, that love is unconditional. Well, clearly there's conditions to being love. Well, but Chris, let me... Okay, so so I'm being asked about this last sentence here and about the Nicolaitans and love and hate. And notice what is hated. Is it the Nicolaitans or what they do? It's the practices of the Nicolaitans. So if you ask me, does Jesus love the Nicolaitans? I would say, yeah, of course. He, He loves them, but they are way off track. And what he hates is what they are practicing. Which Should Jesus be upset angry or hate perversions of the gospel false gospels right paul certainly does right paul has no patience for it because they are it it it, it's like you have a cure for cancer that you want to share with everybody and there's other people out there you know trying to draw people away to something that isn't going to work think about it that way and so, yeah, but it's a, it is a good point because just notice that it's the Nicolaitans, their practices that that the um, Ephesians hate, and Jesus does too. Anything else? Okay, so then we come to verse seven: Whoever has ears, let them hear, what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious. That word is going to show up several times in these letters. The one who is victorious. You persevere. You get all the way to the finish line. Paul uses that imagery in his letters. You get to the finish line. You are victorious over what? Over sin. All the things that wanted to drag you away from Jesus. You have done all you can to live the good life. The life God has given you in the way that God hopes you would live it. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life. The tree of life. Now, the tree of life is is an image that's drawn from ancient Near Eastern literature, including the Hebrews. So the Hebrews don't don't have a monopoly on using a tree of life as an image of Heaven or God's kingdom or eternal life or eternity with God or the right. So, because you meet the tree of life in the opening chapters of Genesis, there are two trees in the garden that matter. There may be lots of trees in the Garden of Eden, but there's two in particular. There's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? That's the tree with the fruit that they're not supposed to eat. But then there's the tree of life. And when Adam and Eve because they eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, are exiled from the garden, then they can no longer have access to the tree of life. So, death enters the picture. Right? That's sort of the sequence of what happens. So we will get, in fact, let's just do it now, just to show you. Turn to Revelation chapter, like, 21. Okay. Okay. For chapter twenty-two. I knew it was there somewhere. You know, if I don't check the trouble, I've probably been so old that if I don't check the references before class, I you know, I know they're there, but I can't necessarily spot them. Okay. Chapter twenty-two, verse one. We'll start there. This is this is in these repetitive pictures of the new heavens and the new earth. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. This is the new Jerusalem. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. Stood the tree of life. Symbolizing what? Symbolizing... Eternity with God, symbolizing eternal life. You, we can now eat from the tree of life in that, in that imagery. So the tree of life is a promise that you will participate in, in God's eternity. So to go back to Revelation 2, verse 7. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And that paradise word is, is a word, um, it's borrowed from the Persian. It's just a word that means a garden, right? So natural place you would find such a tree. So it's just a little moment of, of imagery packed around <laughs> salvation and rescue, really, right? Because you will have overcome sin and death. Bob. is it the tree of life... And the river of life, isn't that symbolic of Jesus? The river of life, the water of life, certainly is. You can't, it's hard to read about the river of life with, without, for me it is, conjuring up John 4, where, where John meets the Samaritan woman and offers her the water. But the tree of life goes is really the way to connect them is, is back at the beginning of Genesis and then at the end. They're symbols more of God's eternity, more than Jesus as a person. Okay. Anything else? How well, soon... Help me with the... When did Paul... Was Paul alive or when this was being written? So I'm getting a question. This is really good because it is so important to try to get some of this timeline st- stuff out and realize when these things are written. No, Paul is dead by the time Revelation's written. So, let's just go through the timeline because I know... I don't think I've done this in here. Jesus is... Um, you would think Jesus would be born like year one or something, wouldn't you? Like if I drew a Pedro line and put a big zero zero on it, that's where you'd put Jesus. But no, Jesus is born maybe 6 BC. Six years before Christ. And you'd ask me, well, how could that be? Well, that guy came on because later on, not knowing what we know now, they messed up the calendar. So we're kind of stuck with it. So Jesus is born about 6 BC or so. He is crucified by Pontius Pilate and resurrected in about 30 AD and maybe 3 years after that paul meets jesus when paul is on the road to damascus and then paul disappears basically for about 15 years or so some stuff we know about and he reemerges in the late 40s with his three missionary journeys and the letters you have in your new testament are letters that paul writes to these churches and um He is probably, people disagree about when Paul died. Some people think he died in 62. Um, I think it was later. I think it was more like maybe 66 or 67. But by then he's an old man. Because how old was Paul? Well, he's a pretty active, busy, important guy in 30 AD. Because he's going around rounding up Christians and things. So he had been to Jerusalem and studied under the great Rabbi Gamaliel. So, scholars who are willing to hazard a guess make Jesus and Paul roughly contemporaries, right? And so, so Paul and and Paul dies. Let's just say sixty-five A.D. Revelation isn't written until the nineties, like a whole generation, like thirty years later, right? So. Um, would the writer of Revelation be familiar with Paul's letters? Some of them almost assuredly. Yeah, I, would, I, would, I have trouble envisioning that you could get to the 90s and find Christian communities which had had no exposure to Paul's letters, myself. But, uh, and, and you're going to find that in some places he sounds like Paul, but is that because he's familiar with Paul or he's talking about the same things? In very different ways, but because this is apocalyptic, but yeah. Is that helpful? Yes. Anything else? We'll, we'll yes? We'll, 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 the as well. well, see, the Gospels are more problematic because Mark is written in the mid 60s, Matthew and Luke, probably, I don't know, <laughs> 80, 85, give or take, a few years. John, the Gospel of John is roughly contemporary with this. So, I would say would have some familiarity with Mark, maybe. Maybe saw some of what Matthew wrote, but certainly Paul's letters, I would think. Some of them. Yeah. It's hard to say. That's the thing, isn't it? It's really a long time ago, and, and they didn't have all of our abilities to transmit things and copy them and move them around and so forth okay but we have one of the seven churches finished now right because look at the next verse verse 8 of chapter 2 to the angel of the church in Smyrna right okay to the angel of the church of Smyrna thus saith the Lord so now we're going to get the message to them Scott? yes just didn't actually physically make it- Did Jesus make it to these places? No, no. John is conveying to you visions. So in his visions, he is told by Jesus to to write this down and carry these messages to these churches. So he is inspired by God, God God-breathed words or whatever, to take these visions he has, whatever exactly he sees. and We can't really know. All we have is what he has here. And the early church after a few centuries of discussion, took Revelation into Scripture alongside Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Right? So, But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I mean, nobody was ever taking Jesus' dictation. Nobody had stenopads following Jesus around. So, right? So, so it's a challenge for us because, you know, we we all want to, you know, I believe the Bible, I trust the Bible. But, No, nobody was taking Jesus' dictation, um, but they did remember it, and they did write it down, and they come out of an oral culture where they could do a much better job of remembering such things than we do now because they didn't have the benefit. I mean, we're spoiled by printed word, so we're not good at at remembering what people say and so forth. But, But these folks were, so anyway. To the angel of the church in Smyrna... These are the words of him who is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, right? So this is another reference to to Jesus, okay? Who died and came to life again, right? I know your afflictions and your poverty. Are they afflicted? Yes. Are they poor? Yes. Smyrna was a rich city. Smyrna was a city of maybe 100,000 people. They claimed to be the prettiest, best city in all of Asia Minor. But I think that might have been their Chamber of Commerce. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know. But, yeah, so again, we, it's hard for us to get in touch with the difficulties the Christians faced in their world where you would be shunned and there would be places where you wouldn't be welcome and you couldn't you couldn't attend, you know, the um, meetings of the union local or whatever it might be because it was all... you couldn't eat meat purchased in a market. Because almost all the meat that was sold had been first sacrificed to some god. You wouldn't... it would be like wasting it not to. You know, you got this lamb, alright, let's find a god, sacrifice it to the god, to keep the gods happy now let's have, you know, barbecue. So, so it was, life was hard for them and so it's not surprising that many of the Christians were poor. Second thing, I think the Gospel would attract people who were poor, people who were ready for the world to be turned upside down. In the Gospel of Luke when Mary meets um, Elizabeth for the first time Mary breaks out into the song, the Magnificat, this is long, and, and it is all about turning the world upside down. It is all about bringing down the wealthy and lifting up the poor. Just taking the whole world and the whole way it's structured, the whole class system, everything else, and turning it upside down. And we think we might live in a class structured world, but it's nothing compared to the class system in this world. The class system in this world was everything. Slaves were basically seen not just second-class citizens; they weren't second-class citizens. They were something less than human. Okay, it's just, and, and and so the gospel and this business of turning the world upside down would be really attractive to poor people. But did did wealthy people come to, to this? Yes. And we know, uh, we know some of them by name. Lydia. She deals in purple cloth. Purple's a color of rich people. So, and Erastus is, Erastus? Yeah, I think it is Erastus. Is like the city treasurer in Corinth or somewhere. But, but yeah, so they, they, there were wealthy people who came into in the movement, but you could certainly see... Um, that, that there were many poor, as there were just many poor in the, in the, in the world generally. There was no middle class. There was, I've heard it described as the class structure being like the Eiffel Tower. Just, you know, a few rich, few here, a few here, and a vast ocean of poor people and slaves. Okay, so I, Jesus says, I know your afflictions and I know your poverty, yet you are rich. How are they rich? In terms of their bank accounts? But they're rich in the love of Christ. They are rich in their faith. You are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Whoa. Again, Satan as a word in Hebrew means adversary or accuser. So it is the natural way to slam Jews who are probably hypocritical in this. They say they are Jews and are not. They say they are Jews but they aren't living that way and they are making life hard on these Christians. I don't think I'm not comfortable going a lot further with that, again, understanding exactly what the issue in the letter is. Everybody reading it at the time would understand this in a way that's harder for us. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. That devil and Satan are all equivalent. Okay. We'll put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Ten days. That seems odd, doesn't it? Ten days. Where does 10, 10, ten days come from? Well, here's probably where the ten days come from. In the in the book of Daniel, in the very first story in Daniel, Daniel and his buddies are sent to work in the um. Uh, court of the Babylonian king, and, and um, they refuse to eat the king's food because some of it isn't what you and I today would call kosher. The king likes his BLTs. They're not willing to eat the BLTs that are served at the king's lunch, and so they asked to be put on a ration of basically vegetables and water. And they are tested in this way. For how long? Ten days, and the Book of Daniel was very popular in the first century among Jews. So yeah, that, that that's probably where the ten days days come from. You know, it's it's not just a couple days; it's not forever, but it it probably reflects uh, the testing in Daniel. Um, it's a way for for these Christians who are being persecuted to understand that they. Um, They're they're gonna it's gonna it acknowledges the reality that they are going to suffer, but reminds them that that the suffering won't last and calls them to be faithful. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. To get back to that word victorious again, be faithful, stay strong, endure. Don't don't deny Jesus under pressure. And I will give you the victor's crown. We know that Christians were pressured in this way. We have writings, particularly in the 2nd century and in the 3rd century when the number of Christians is growing of Christians who are put to the test in this way. And we know that there are some who uh, never forsook their faith in Christ in the sense of deny, they never denied Christ but there were others who did deny Christ and one of the things that happened in the early church was that the early church as it grew and prospered had to decide what to do about those who had denied Christ under persecution and you know what the early Christian church did they took them all back took them all back. We vary in our courage, we vary in our bravery, and, and they were wise to take them back. Um, You've probably heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer who, who was hung, he's a Christian philosopher and theologian who was hung for his participation in the assassination plot against Adolf Hitler. He died like in February of 1845. Nineteen forty-five, <laughs> but he, he 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 in one of his writings he acknowledged. He says, "You know, everybody's not me. Everybody's not going to to be able to do what I God has granted me the ability to do." Um, just, that, that's just just how it is, and um, so, but nonetheless, you can understand the call by Jesus by the Christians, by the writer of Revelation, to be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be heard at all by the second death. You're probably thinking, well, the first one's enough, isn't it? The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. All right, so let's run that one down. Turn again to Revelation. You're already in Revelation, aren't you? Turn to Revelation. I know where this one is. This is Revelation 20. Okay, I know exactly where it is. And it will give me an opportunity, and I will say this 50 times while we're in Revelation, that the very last thing, that happens in the sequence before the arrival of the new heavens and the new earth is the judgment. That's when the judgment is rendered. That's when the names are read. It isn't earlier. It is there at the very end of chapter 20 after Jesus is returned, after everybody's been resurrected, only after all that's done Judgment is rendered, and the new heavens and the new earth arrive. So, here's the second death. Look at... Oh, let's just do the whole thing. We'll come back here again, and you'll be anticipating it for it, okay? The judgment of the dead is how you might call the next paragraph. This is Revelation 20, verse 11. This is John. John's still going to be giving you this vision of his. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, as in rich and powerful, oh, wait, rich and poor, powerful and weak, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. And death and Hades, Hades being the underworld, the place of the dead, gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. That's sometimes referred to as, I call it, the book of merit. Okay? Verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. How do you throw death anywhere? Right? How do you throw the underworld anywhere? You don't. It's a metaphor, it's imagery. It means that death and Hades were gone. Death is over, death is no more. The lake of death is the lake of fire is the second death. When we say that Jesus, when we talk about Jesus on the cross being God's victory over sin and death, this is where that becomes fully accomplished. Death is no more. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life, not the book of Merit, the book of life, was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay? The same place death was thrown into. So, when, back in Revelation 2, he says the one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. The one who is victorious will... Their name will be in the book of life, and they will get to share eternity with God. That's what he's talking about. And that's really all it says that's, that's all that's going on in, in Revelation 2, verse 11. Okay? Thoughts or questions about that one? Yeah. Yes. All are judged. I mean, all are all, all are resurrected. All are judged. And then the unbeliever goes into the lake of fire. Those whose names are not found in the book of life go into the lake of fire, which is a metaphor, okay, cuz that's where death went and where Hades went. So you, you can't actually picture you know, a, a place, because it doesn't make any sense to throw death into anything. It just means the end of death. So, okay? But we're going to, we'll, we'll come to that that section when we get there. I know you, yes? Oh, can I ask one question about Okay, one question. Okay. Uh, is the lake of fire, does it say that there's eternal punishment there? I mean, it sounds like it's throwing it into a bonfire, and poof, everybody's gone does it? It's so, so Phil is pointing out that when, what happens when you throw something into a fire? What happens to it? It burns up, up, it's consumed, it's annihilated, right? Hold on to that thought until next Easter and we will talk about (laughs) it when we get to chapter 20, okay? Okay? (laughs) Yeah, it raises lots of questions. When you actually read the Bible, there's lots of things that we think we know the answer to, that when you read the Bible really closely, you're going like, I don't know if people have really told me the right stuff all my life or whatever. So we'll see. Okay. We'll see when we get there. So let's do one more letter. I got time. I got. We can do this one. This is Pergamum. You got because you got the drift now. You get that. I mean, they're all. I mean, there are similarities to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Thus saith the Lord: These are the words of him who is the sharp, double-edged sword. Each one of these begins with a reference back to the vision of Christ. Remember the vision of Christ in chapter 1? Jesus has this double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Right? This penetrating word. Verse 13. I know where you live. (laughs) That's kind of intimidating right there, isn't it? I know where you live. Where Satan has his throne. You know, Pergamum. What's the deal? So, what is this a reference to? We don't really know. There were various temples there. There was a big temple of Zeus there. Um, Maybe Pergamum has a special reputation for, you know, trouble or whatever. But we we don't really know. Um, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. That's the key part. Yet you remain true to my name. You're right there, you know, in the ante room of, of Satan's palace. And you stay true to my word. You stay true and faithful to me. You did not renounce your faith in me. Not even in the days of Antipas. That's a, that's a, a nickname. Um, just, just a person. We don't know anything more about him. Not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness... Now that witness word is the Greek word martyr from which we get our word martyr. But it doesn't really mean yet everything we put into the meaning of the word martyr. But it's fascinating that, that becomes this word witness becomes the word that Christians use to talk about those who um, die for their faith. My faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. This is, right, so it's almost if that, if that is the explanation for how this could happen, how could it be that poor Antipas was put to death in that city? And despite the fact that he is put to death for his faith, the other Christians in Pergamum are commended by Jesus because they have not surrendered their faith. They have stayed faithful. Verse 14. Nevertheless... I have a few things against you. (laughs) There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. The story of Balaam is a story from the Old Testament and it is a story in which the Israelites end up going astray and having a lot of sex with non-Israelite women and other stuff, and Balaam gets a really bad rap in the New Testament. I, you know, I've read the Old Testament story. I don't think Balaam is is that horrible a character, but he becomes this the, this symbol of somebody who leads people astray. And in this case, if you're listening to Balaam, you are being led astray, Christians, because you are doing two of the things that are explicitly said in the Acts 15 letter that you shouldn't do. Food sacrifice to idols and committing sexual immorality. Um, turn to Acts 15 because I realize I should explain this. I just throw stuff like that out. and. Okay, Acts 15. Here's what's going on. Quick and dirty. The Christians are trying to figure out exactly what the Christian life should be like. And, and they know what the law of Moses is, that you right, you don't eat pork, and you don't work on Saturday, and yada yada down the line. And they know that Jesus was Jewish. So they know that Jesus didn't eat pork, and he didn't eat shrimp, and he didn't work on the Sabbath, and so the, quest, the question for the Christians is, If we're Jesus people, shouldn't we also avoid pork, pork, shrimp, and work on Saturdays? That's the the question. Paul Paul has to deal with it. And so the council meeting, a a meeting of all the top dogs, such as they are, happens in Jerusalem. At the Hyatt Regency, Jerusalem, they gather in a conference room, right? Some of you have heard that joke ten times, but I don't care. So, they gather at the Hyatt Regency in Jerusalem, and they hash this out. And they determined that, no, the Christians, that, that the law had its place. It was, it was important, it was necessary, but its time has passed. And so, yes, the Christians can eat pork, and no, here's the real kicker. Incoming Gentile men do not have to be circumcised to be part of this Jesus movement, which is obviously the movement would have got wouldn't have gotten very far if every right I mean, we laugh but it, you know it's true right <laughs> so um so they but the letter goes out from the council out to, to be carried out to the churches and this is what they say that you don't have to 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 live under the law of moses you don't have to be circumcised yes you can eat your blts but it does say asks them um in verse 20 of Acts 15. Um, they say we should write to them telling them certain things. Abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Now those four things are sort of like top of the list stuff that would make a Jewish person's head blow off their shoulder. Right? And so it's a way for the Christians to respect, for the Gentile Christians to respect the feelings of their Jewish brothers, Jewish Christian brothers and sisters. Is that clear? Early in the movement, early in the Jesus movement, there are Gentiles who embrace Jesus. And there are Jews who embrace Jesus, like Paul. Like, like all the writers of the New Testament, with the exception of Luke. So there are Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians in the movement, and, and the Jewish Christians, some of them have, have a real problem with this. And so I think the council, you know urges the Christians to to not do the things that are the worst. And so now when you go back to Revelation 2, verse 14, what are they doing? Eating food, sacrifice, sacrifice idols, and committing sexual immorality. So two of the four are specifically listed in this. So, right, so he's talking about some things that the Christians are being tempted to do that they should not do. He says... Verse 15 of Revelation 2. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of whom? Again, the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. The word of Christ. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, there's that word again, I will give some of the hidden manna. A lot of ink has been spilled on that. Manna is the food that the Israelites are given by God to sustain them after they flee Egypt. When they're starving and complaining and whining, whining day after day, God says, okay, so every day they go out and collect this dew-like substance off the ground called manna, and that sustains them. It's like their daily bread. Hidden manna. Honestly scholars aren't don't agree on exactly what the what the reference is about the hiddenness of it but we get the man apart I will also give that person a white stone So did I <laughs> <laughs> You know, this is where, you you just have to be careful with Revelation. So look at the next one. (laughs) I will also give that person a white stone. A white stone, what could that be? Do we really know? We don't. And nobody should pretend that they do. Sure, scholars are willing to speculate guesses on this and that, but an honest one, it's just going to tell you, no, we're not really sure exactly this is the significance of the white. So we get the widest purity and so forth and, and, and a new name written on it. Maybe that comes from the book of Isaiah, which talks about that when God does God's big thing and he rescues Israel from Israel's enemies, that God is going to give them a new name. Their name will no, will no longer like be desolate and poor and Downtrodden. Now their name will be um, blessed and wealthy and whatever. Right? So maybe it maybe it's something like that's a way of conveying again this tree of life stuff and the second death stuff that 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 the promises that God had made to his people in the past, you will participate in all of that. Right? Just stay stay faithful. Be victorious it's a call to, it's a call to faithfulness so that is 3 of the 7 letters <laughs> so any final thoughts or questions yes um, manna. Would the manna be the bread of life could it be t- the bread of life is jesus it it could be um probably more tied directly to the old testament story right because that's a story of salvation and rescue but you're right to make a connection there It could be um i just i just stay modest about that kind of thing there'll be a lot of symbols coming up that we will understand quite well or explain to us but there are ones like these that are a little bit gotta gotta just be modest about it okay would you pray with me gracious lord as we leave here tonight we just pray that you will help us to be faithful. Help us to not tolerate wickedness and oppression and injustice and false teachings. Help us to apply ourselves to this in such a way that we do come to understand better what the good news of Jesus Christ really is. What is this rescue we're talking about? How do people um come to this? We, you know, we we read these words and we can... Appreciate what folks were going through 2,000 years ago. Help us in our prayers remember Christians today who are being persecuted. Right now, today, Christians who are being um, asked to renounce Jesus. Give them strength, and may our prayers be with them. All this we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.